Our gospel text for today from the Gospel of Luke. We'll be reading chapter 9, verses 51 on to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another, he said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of God for the people of God. So I'm not normally a fan of uh, titling sermons, uh, but this one I feel like has to be titled and his face was set on Jerusalem. And I'll explain that shortly. But you all might have heard before, because we talk about it a fair bit, that Alicia and I are in a chat group that runs constantly uh, with her siblings, some of the in-laws, and her mom. And early this week, we got a notification in that chat group from Glorianne, Alicia's mom, uh, that she showed up to her house from work to find two campaign signs in her front yard that she didn't put there. Uh, have you, any of y'all ever had that happen? Somebody put a campaign sign in your yard that you didn't ask for? Um, one for a state position and one for a local position, but the position doesn't matter. But when she told us about it, the kids went to work because they got kind of riled up. Alicia and Micah, her little brother, both started contacting the campaigns of these two candidates uh, to let them know their distaste for what had occurred for these signs showing up in their mom's yard without their consent. Um, and it, was, it wasn't about who the candidates were, per se, but it was about their response that got everybody a little bit riled up because it was a little lackluster, to say the least. It was a little uh, flippant. Uh, one of them was basically like, you know what, this isn't my problem. I was like, it's, we can make it your problem if you want us to. Um, but it was infuriating. Uh, but I don't know about y'all, political signs in general these days kind of make me kind of infuriated. Because they seem to be everywhere. You can't turn one way or the other without seeing signs. Uh, and these signs are almost, in the way that things are going these days, it seems like they're more divisive than they are anything else. They are more separating than they are bringing together. It is less about making allegiances and more about making enemies. You might have heard me read the gospel reading just a minute ago and think that I'd be talking about foxes and birds and burying the dead. These stories are familiar and they will come up. They are a part of this sermon. 
But I really think the text that leads into it as we read Luke's gospel is just as important, if not more important. I wanted to focus on this story that precedes them because I think it gives us an understanding of what to do with the concept of enemies. As we sit in such a divided time, a time when many of us have political or theological opinions that we consider a part of our identity, that we consider a part of our understanding of the world, and when events in the news fill us with anger and with sympathy and with fear, when we don't know what direction to turn or who to trust, what do we do? How do we let our faith inform our decisions? How do we let what's going on inform our faith and our relationship with those that God told us to love? To start, let us take a look at this text and see what's going on with Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I love the language of this. We talk about Luke as this doctor, right? But I tell you what, this is poetic. He has a way with words that people kind of seem to skip over when they talk about Luke as a writer. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that his time was coming to go to Jerusalem. He knew what he had to do in that city. Surely he would only spend a few days in that city before things start going south, before things come crashing down on him. We often wonder how much Jesus knew about his future when we talk about the incarnation and God becoming man. How much did Jesus know about what was going to take place? When we read this language, though, even without divine knowledge, you can see that Jesus knew the score. Jesus knew what was going to go down on some level. This simple line, his face was set towards Jerusalem, tells us he knew quite a bit. He sent messengers before him, likely to proclaim what he was going to be doing in Jerusalem, but this message wasn't received by this Samaritan village. We don't know why they disagreed with Jesus' message. It does not really matter. Either way, he wasn't welcome there. They'd become enemies. But talking about enemies is a hard thing because on some level it seems like we've fallen short when we talk about having enemies, when we feel like we've done something wrong. How did we ruin this relationship? How did we decide enough was enough? Shouldn't in loving everyone we be striving to not have enemies at all? This question is asked even deeper when we look at how James and John respond to this Samaritan village. James and John realize the wrongdoing of this town. They don't want to be the enemies of this town, but they have found themselves being so nonetheless. That's where they stand, and they see this town's action as wrong, as evil, and in their understanding, in their zeal, in their fervor, they see it as evil worthy of judgment. They ask Jesus if they should pray for fire to rain down from heaven onto the town. In their understanding of faith, though, this is the righteous thing to do. Elisha read to us of Elijah and Elisha a minute ago, and both of them have stories of fire raining down from heaven. 
God got rid of God's enemies, Sodom and Gomorrah, through fire coming down from heaven. This wouldn't be the first time God set a town ablaze. Surely God would hear their cry and do the same to the Samaritan town that would not accept their Messiah and their king. Now, I hope none of you have attempted to call fire down from heaven recently. But we also can't send and sit and pretend as if there aren't people, places, ideas, groups of which we don't have the same righteous indignation. They might not be the same for person to person, but that feeling of having an enemy is near universal. There are a lot of types of enemies, but today we're specifically looking at people that get under our skin because they brush up against what we think is right and just in this world. There might have been a day when political differences were talked about as points of view, but today does not seem like that day. Today, political affiliation is attached to the real and perceived atrocities committed by those in power that hold that same identity. So when we talk to folks different than us, there's a lot of baggage coming to the conversation. And like James and John, we might be filled with the kind of righteous indignation that can bring fire down from heaven when we think of those on the other side of the aisle. But in the face of this hatred, Jesus says no. Jesus does not stoke the fire raging in their hearts. He rather rebukes them. He's already told them that they are commanded to love their enemies, and we cannot love those we desire to see burning with embers, holy or otherwise. He rebukes them, and they're off another way. If we follow the titles in most of our Bibles, that is the end of this story. Because our text today started with this story, but goes into another one, a story that seems to be unrelated, a story that we seem to be more familiar with. It's hard to see a connection between these two texts, but when we study scripture, we have to understand it is important to remember that the writers tend to place stories together for a reason. Uh, when we were with Chuck and Martha last week before last, one of the things Chuck decided he was going to make fun of me about was the fact that I used the word juxtaposition all the time. Uh, and I tried not to use the word juxtaposition in this sermon. Juxtaposition just means putting two things next to each other. There's a fancy word for a very simple idea. Um, but these two stories are juxtaposed for a reason. I'm sorry, I can't not use it. It's too good of a word. To Luke, Jesus' rebuking of James and John and their desire for fire is allowed to be followed by this story for a reason. There is some literary and important theme and lesson that is going on here. I believe Luke is telling us what to do when we feel the fiery anger James and John felt in this story. I believe Jesus is teaching us how to both live in the kingdom, and love our enemies. We know of the first follower who comes up and tells Jesus that they will follow him wherever he goes. Jesus says, hold on, a lot of folks have it pretty cushy, but I don't. 
And if you follow me, you won't have it pretty cushy either. This is hard work with no rest. I read a while back ago that Jesus had a tendency to call Herod a fox. And the symbol for Caesar was a huge eagle. So with that understanding, maybe it's like there is a subtext of what Jesus is talking about here. If you put yourself in the the shoes of James and John and you hear foxes and eagles, you're thinking, oh, he's talking about somebody. And you hear a little bit of the annoyance in Jesus's voice because it's like Jesus is saying, if you want an easy life, those are the two guys you should go follow. When you hear it this way, you can almost hear the, the anger rising in Jesus's voice because if you read it like this, Jesus is talking about his number one and number two enemies on this planet. If you are James and John, you're aware of the pain Jesus feels when mentioning these men. And Jesus is on a roll from here on because the first guy might have come up and talked to Jesus directly, but Jesus is suddenly looking for someone and says, hey, you, follow me. The guy says, sure, but let me go bury my dead first. As I said earlier, Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem. On some level, he knows what he's going to this city to do. He knows those closest to him will soon be in the same position as this man, burying their dead. Now, he's not only angry at his enemies. He's also angry at the situation he's in. He's angry at the circumstances he finds himself in. It's the same anger that leads him to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he says to the man, as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You might think what I'm saying here sounds like a stretch. And I could see why, you're, why you would say that. While these two followers can be seen in this text, they also are seen in Matthew. But the third follower is specific to Luke. Why would Luke add another one unless he's trying to set something in our minds to try to bring things together. So this story of James and John wanting to set fire to this town and this third follower of Jesus, I think are connected. When the third follower says, hey, let me go tell my folks bye first, which is a very innocuous thing to do, right? That doesn't take but five minutes. That shouldn't be that big of a deal. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This, to me, cements that Jesus is using these three guys not to talk to them, but rather to talk to James and John, to continue the story, to continue the conversation, to tell a lesson after the rebuking them of their fervor. What happens if you turn your head while plowing? Does anybody know? Has anybody ever actually plowed something by hand before? That's not a thing anyone does. But I've heard enough sermons to know what happens when you turn your head while plowing. What happens when you turn your head while plowing? The road gets crooked, right? I mean, yeah, there's not much you can do to continue going straight if you turn your head because you're going to want to go that way, right? You get a crooked row, and you can't do the work in excellence. And just like you can't turn around and plow in excellence, we can't be 
focused on what is behind us and continue to do the work of the kingdom in excellence. We can't continue to do, to focus on the, the actions of our enemies and continue to do the work of the kingdom of God in excellence. We can't be so engrossed in our enemies that we can't see the work right in front of us. Jesus is telling James and John that the energy that they need to fuel the fire of anger against the Samaritans is energy wasted. Instead, they should be putting hands on the plow and looking at the good work of the kingdom. In the days that we live in, it is easy for us to see atrocities. It is easy for us to see opinions and positions that we disagree with. It is easy for us to see injustices. It is easy for us to see enemies and be so focused on it that we forget what we're here for. But I'm not here to be against the powers that be as much as I am here to be for the poor, to be for the sick, to be for the outcast, to be for the forgotten. I'm here to do the work of the kingdom of God. Keeping my eyes on my enemies won't help me do that. It'll only hinder me but that anger can still fuel the work. That anger can be God-given, and using that anger to do good is a way to love our enemies, as we also love those God has given us to care for. Now, Martin Luther, the German reformer, once said about anger, I find nothing that promotes work better than angry fervor. For when I wish to compose, write, pray, and preach well, I must be angry. It refreshes my entire system, my mind is sharpened, and all unpleasant thoughts and depression fade away. Now first, I think Luther and my wife have a lot in common. <laughs> and secondly, I think Luther was right, at least in this moment, if if and only if we are able to keep our face on the kingdom of God and continue the work of the kingdom. The text today started by telling us Jesus' face was set on Jerusalem. I think it's important to remember that it was not set on Rome. It was not set on Herod's temple. It was set on Jerusalem. It was set on the work that he had set out to do. It was set on the work that he knew would bring the kingdom of God at hand. Now, sometimes that work might look angry. You guys might forget, but the first thing he does when he shows up in Jerusalem is turn over some tables. It might look like nailing the 95 theses to the wall. It might look like sit-ins and boycotts and protests because this kind of work exposes the corruption in the world that hurts God's children. So don't let anyone tell you that kind of work isn't loving. I don't think Jesus meant when he told us to love our enemies and do good to those that persecute us, that he expected this alone to make the hearts of our enemies change. Suddenly they would have a change of understanding and become friends. But rather, Jesus knew that the work of the kingdom, 
especially against a world that would really prefer not to be turned upside down, is a hard work that will make enemies. Our goal is to not keep everything at peace, but rather to love, and to love dangerously. May we pray. Most gracious God, we thank you.